Vielen Dank, ich bin wirklich sehr stolz, und dass ich hier bin. Leider ist meine deutsche Sprache nicht gut genug. So muss ich auf Sprache des universellen Imperialismus wechseln. Äh, 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 my guideline, you can say, is a thought of Adorno from the beginning of his drei Studien zu Hegel, where he totally rejects this fashionable historicist approach to Hegel in the sense of the title of Benedetto Croce's book, What is Living and What is Death in Hegel, as if we can today judge Hegel. He says, Adorno, that the true question, if Hegel is still a living presence, is exactly the opposite one. Let's try to imagine what is our contemporary world in the eyes of Hegel. Uh, now, can we still be Hegelians today? The ultimate anti-Hegelian argument is the very fact of the post-Hegelian break. What even the most fanatical partisan of Hegel cannot deny is that something changed after Hegel. A new era of thought began which can no longer be accounted for in Hegelian terms of absolute conceptual mediation, Vermittlung. This rupture occurs in different guises, from Schelling's assertion of the abyss of pre-logical will, vulgarized by Schopenhauer, and Kierkegaard's insistence on the uniqueness of faith and subjectivity, up to Marx's assertion of actual socio-economic life process and the full autonomization of mathematicized natural sciences. There is here a clear break between before and after. So we can say that after this break, Hegelian thought in a way lost its innocence. Again, to paraphrase Adorno, to act like a full Hegelian today involves the same falsity as to write tonal music after Schoenberg's revolution. One cannot pretend that it didn't happen. The predominant Hegelian strategy today that is emerging as a reaction against this reproach is what I am tempted to call the deflated image of Hegel. The idea is forget about or ignore Hegel's ontological metaphysical commitments and then we get something along the lines of Brandom and others. Hegel reduced to some kind of a general theorist of discourse, like logic is no longer an ontological, Hegel's logic, an ontological metaphysical treaty, but a kind of a general outline of all possible in our historical moments, uh, moment, all possible uh, strategies of discursive argumentation or modes of to describe the world. Here, again, the so-called metaphysical questions, like these very naive questions, what's the origin of our reality, does God exist, and so on, simply disappear. One ignores them. But already the history of 
popular sciences today tells us that we cannot ignore these questions. What I'm tempted to say is that the mega popularity of people like Stephen Hawking or some Darwinians, isn't it, doesn't it reside precisely in the fact that they were there filling in this gap? People do not read Hawking to understand quantum physics. Nobody does it. They read Hawking to get the big answers. So my thesis is that such a deflated Hegel is not enough. True, there is a break after Hegel, but as, as you will try at least to indicate, uh, I think that uh, the break is between post-Hegelian thought, this reassertion of a positivity of being which precedes begrifliche uh, Vermittlung, and the pre-Hegelian, let's call it pre-critical, even naive metaphysics, but I'm sorry I will not have time to develop in this in detail. My thesis is that precisely Hegel disappears in this passage. Hegel is, if I may use the term elaborated by French Hegelian, sorry, uh, American Hegelian Marxist Frederick Jameson, Hegel is a vanishing mediator between the two. In this passage between traditional philosophy and so-called post-metaphysical thought, Hegel for a brief moment saw something which you see neither before or after. And if you have a real dialectical sensitivity, for example, even for the history of art, you will see that in this always happens in moments of historical breakthrough or passage. That if you are in between, you can see something which afterwards it becomes invisible. Again, I'm sorry I don't have time. I could engage here in, for example, a nice example from history of cinema, the beginning of sound cinema. For a brief moment, those apparent reactionaries, like Charlie Chaplin, knew something about the ominous dimension of voice. Remember the crucial fact that Chaplin's first full sound film is uh, The Great Dictator, where he split his own person of, of the tramp into tramp and his double pure figure of voice, Hinkel, that is to say Hitler. I claim he saw there a potentially ominous spectral dimension of voice, to put it bluntly, he, he saw for a brief moment that voice is never a transparent means of self-expression, that voice is a kind of a foreign body intruder which can haunt us, which again became later uh, uh, again invisible. So I claim that it is precisely to obliterate this uh, unbearable excess in Hegel, what Hegel saw and became later invisible, that uh, this ridiculous image of Hegel, the popular image emerged. You know, Hegel, you know, that crazy guy, Prussian state philosopher who thought that he knows everything, absolute knowledge from the beginning, that he can read divine thoughts and so on and so on. I think that this image of Hegel should be treated precisely what in psychoanalysis we call Deckerinnerungen, a fantasy formation to obfuscate, to render invisible some traumatic 
data. Let me nonetheless go back to this Hegel, this ultra-totalitarian intellectual. How do we relate to this Hegel? Maybe the model was provided here by an interesting Catholic theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, who, having in mind precisely thinkers like Hegel, made in his well-known novel, among other places, uh, The Man Who Was Thursday, an ironic proposal to install for the state to organize, I quote him, a special corps of policemen, policemen who are also philosophers. Quote, it is their business of these policemen philosophers to watch the beginnings of a conspiracy, not only a criminal, but but a controversy before the criminal. The work of the philosophical policeman should be at once bolder and more subtle than that of the ordinary detective. The ordinary detective goes to pothouse to arrest thieves. We go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a ledger or a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. We have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. Now, this may appear to you ridiculous, but think about it. Would not thinkers as different as Popper, Adorno, Levinas, and probably, if he still sticks to his old ideas of 20 years ago, also my predecessor here, André Glucksmann, would they not also subscribe to a slightly changed version of this idea, where actual political crime is called totalitarianism and the philosophical crime is condensed in the word totality. A straight road leads from the philosophical notion of totality to political totalitarianism. And the task of philosophical police should be then to discover from a book of Plato's dialogues or from a treatise of, on social contract by Rousseau that a political crime, totalitarian revolution, gulag, will be committed. Or, as they say in English, from Plato to NATO. For Plato. <laughs> The ordinary political policeman goes to secret organizations to arrest terrorists. The philosophical policeman goes to philosophical symposia, or maybe they are here, to detect proponents of totality. Now, I would like then to begin by precisely doing this, defending the notion of totality. You know this extremely boring deconstructionist point that Hegelian totality wants to grasp it all, but there is always something which escapes an indivisible remainder, excess, and so on. But I claim, if you really read Hegel closely, you will see that this is the point of his notion of totality. Totality is not an ideal of organic whole, but a critical notion. To locate a phenomenon in its totality does not mean to see the hidden harmony of the whole, 
but to include into a system all its symptoms, antagonisms, inconsistencies, excesses, as its integral parts. In other words, the Hegelian totality is by definition self-contradictory, antagonistic. The whole, which is the true, you know, das Ganze is das Ware, is the whole plus its symptoms, its unintended consequences, which betray its untruth. For example, in one phrase, today's global capitalism means speak about Congo, totally devastated land and so on. See how that is a necessary part of today's global capitalism. This is why, again, the anti-Hegelian rhetorics, which insists on how Hegel's totality misses the details which stick out and ruins its balance, misses the point. The space of the Hegelian totality is the very space of abstract, harmonious whole and all the excesses which undermine it. Which is why, incidentally, now I'm still moving at a very elementary level. Just read honestly Hegel and you will see this with an openness that when Hegel speaks about list der Vernunft, all his examples are exactly the opposite of what is usually attributed to him. List der Vernunft doesn't mean things may seem to go wrong, but there is a higher hidden reason which guarantees that it will all end up well, that even what appears to us a catastrophe serves a higher purpose. List der Vernunft, I mean, the best definition would have been whenever you have a project to do something, you can be sure that something will go wrong. That's how it functions. List der Vernunft means how every project is undermined by its uh, inconsistency. Now, let's go a step further. You will tell me, okay, but I got engaged now in a kind of a dialectical interplay where every totality is its opposite, where uh, uh, law itself is the highest crime and so on and so on. You are fully justified to raise here a very naive, why not, ethical uh, reproach. Does this bring us to some pseudo-dialectical, relativized, uh, 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 cynical anti-moralism? No. Let me prove it by just one genuinely dialectical figure, which I found in someone in whom you would not expect to find it, Richard Wagner. I'm referring to the draft of a play, Jesus of von Nazareth, that Wagner wrote somewhere between late 1848 and early 1849, where Wagner attributes to Jesus a series of alternate supplementations to the commands. A quote from Wagner. The commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, you shall not marry without love. A marriage without love is broken as soon as entered into. And who marries without love already breaks the wedding. And so on. Uh, end of quote. So, the shift from the actual words of Jesus is crucial here. Jesus, as we all know, internalizes the prohibition, rendering it much more severe. The law says no actual adultery, while I say, if you only covet the other's wife in your mind, it is the same as if you 
have already committed adultery, and so on. Wagner does something different. The inner dimension he evokes is not that of intention to do it, adultery, but that of love that should accompany law, marriage. The true adultery is not to copulate outside marriage, but to copulate in marriage without love. The simple adultery, cheating your wife, just violates the law from outside, while marriage without love destroys it from within, turning the letter of the law against its spirit. So, to paraphrase Brecht again, you know, that Brecht of what is the robbing of a bank to the uh, founding of a new bank. What is a simple adultery compared to the adultery which is a loveless marriage? It is not by chance that Wagner's underlying formula, marriage is adultery, marriage without love, recalls Proudhon's property is theft. In the stormy year of 1848, Wagner was not only a Feuerbachian celebrating sexual love, but also a Proudhonian revolutionary. So, he also gives a similar paraphrase of you shall not steal. I quote again Wagner. This also is a good law, you shall not steal. Who goes against this law is sinning. But I preserve you from this sin inasmuch as I teach you. Love your neighbor as yourself, which also means uh, lay not up for yourself treasures, treasures whereby you are stealing from your neighbor and make him to starve. For when you have your goods safeguarded by the law of man, you provoke your neighbor to sin against the law. End of quote. Uh, so what Wagner is here saying, in a properly Hegelian, I think, move of negation of negation, is what he practices is a shift from the distortion of a notion to a distortion constitutive of the notion itself. Recall again Proudhon's old dialectical motto, property is theft. The negation of negation is here the shift from theft as a distortion, negation, violation of property, to the dimension of theft inscribed into the very notion of property. And uh, so, again, this shift where in turn external negation becomes self-negation, where, okay, we have, let's say, crime as external negation of law, but what if an oppressive law is in itself the highest crime, and so on, and so on. This move, I think, is, is, uh, this move, I think, is crucial for the Hegelian conceptual uh, process, and we can already here discern the contours of a dialectical process, namely, this brings me now to my next point, to the specific temporality of a dialectical process, which is obviously, uh, oh, sorry, often overlooked. Remember how, I will take the example of French Revolution, remember how Hegel celebrated the French Revolution as, I quote, a glorious mental dawn, all thinking beings shared in the jubilation of this epoch. 
emotions of a lofty character stirred men's minds at that time. A spiritual enthusiasm thrilled through the world, as if the reconciliation between the divine and the secular was now first accomplished. End of quote. This, of course, as we all know, did not prevent Hegel from coldly analyzing the inner necessity of the explosion of abstract freedom to turn into its opposite, the self-destructive revolutionary terror. However, one should never forget that Hegel's critique is immanent, accepting the basic principle of the French Revolution. Hegel in no way subscribes to the standard liberal critique of the French Revolution, which locates the wrong term into uh, 1792-93. That is to say whose ideal is 89 without uh, 93, the liberal phase without its Jacobin radicalization. For Hegel, 93-94 is a necessary immanent consequence of 89. There was no choice in 89 or 92 to take a more moderate path. Why? Because only the abstract terror of the French Revolution creates the conditions for the post-revolutionary concrete freedom. So, if we try to put it in the terms of choice, then Hegel practices here the paradox of logical temporality. The first choice has to be the wrong choice. And it is only the wrong choice which creates the conditions for the right choice. You see what I mean? When Hegel criticizes again the terror of the French Revolution as abstract freedom against the rational post-revolutionary state, his point is not we have a choice and we should choose the good, concrete, rational state against abstract terror. No. His point is that you only arrive at the point from which you can see the possibility of a rational state through revolutionary terror. In other words, you must repeat the choice. The first choice is simply between organic totality of pre-revolutionary world and again, it's only terror itself with its negativity which opens up the space for so-called concrete freedom. It's the same with that, so that you will see that Hegel also has its obscenity. You remember, Hegel's two readings of Der Geist ist ein Knochen, of The Spirit is a Bone, where Hegel, and this is much more often than it may appear a case, uh, refers in a lovingly obscene way to Phallus. No? And he says, it is like in the case of Phallus when you have the unity of the organ of the lowest urination and organ of the highest insemination. But wait a minute, again, read it closely. Hegel is not saying, so we should make a choice, not the lowest but the highest. The whole point of Hegel's description of phrenology is that you arrive at the highest only through the lowest, through the radical contradiction of, through the radical contradiction of the of the, uh, of the lowest. Uh, again, this is the basic temporality of the dialectical process. There is a choice, but, but in two stages. The choice has to be repeated. 
which is why Hegel uh, has, I claim, a whole, in Hegelian process, there is a whole underlying structure of jokes. Of this type of jokes where you progress through, through a misunderstanding or a mistake of a failure. You do something wrong, but then you discover that this wrong in itself, if you just change the perspective, already is its own, its own solution. Like, if you permit me to repeat an old joke that I'm repeating already for literally 40 years, I'm sorry for repeating myself, you know, the, the joke, Soviet joke about, you know, Rabinovich, a Jew who wants to emigrate, goes to the uh, state bureaucrat responsible for it and says, I want to leave Soviet Union for two reasons. The first reason is, I'm afraid that Soviet Union will disintegrate and uh, they will then blame us Jews for all the communist crimes. And the bureaucrat tells him, are you crazy? Soviet Union will be here forever. Nothing will ever change here. Then Rabinovich says, well, this is my second reason. No? I mean, <laughs> this is the logic of dialectical reversal. There is no magic in final twist. It's simply that the very argument against becomes an argument for. And I will, don't have time now to go in detail into it, but just read Hegel's theory of why Christ had to die on the cross. And you will see it's practically a Rabinovich joke. The idea is, you know, it's like those wonderful doctor's jokes. What do you want to hear? First the bad news, then the good news, no? which are, I think, very Hegelian, you know, in the style of, okay, first I will tell you, says the doctor, the bad news. We discovered you have cancer, you will be dead in two months. Then you ask, but what can be the good news then? Eh? And the doctor says, well, we also discovered you have Alzheimer and you will forget the bad news before you reach home. No? <laughs> uh, that uh, the bad news is God is dead on the cross. We are abandoned by God. We have no support in a substantial other. And what's the good news? Exactly the same news. It means we are given freedom. Because for Hegel, I'm sorry, I don't have time to develop it. I claim Hegel was the first to read gospel in a truly materialist way. Why? Okay, let me improvise a little bit. I'm making suicide. It's my time. <laughs> if you ask me the first critique of ideology critique in world literature or whatever. It's the book of, how do you pronounce it in German? Job, Job, the guy who got, like, strange face. Uh, you remember what happens then when things go wrong? Three friends come, theologists, each of them tries to convince Job of how his suffering must have some deeper meaning. One says, oh, even if, if you think you didn't do anything wrong, God uh, is just, so just look deeper, you must have done something wrong. The second one says something like, maybe this is all a test by God, suffer, and so on and so on. And then the wonder happens, you remember. God comes and says, everything those three guys said is wrong, everything that he upset was complaining about is right. But what happens then? Then Hiob nonetheless asks God, okay, but still, why did all this happen to me? Now comes the crucial thing. Usually we read God's answer 
as the arrogant dancer. You know all those lines of, are you even aware of all the monsters, unicorns, I don't know what that I created. Who are you to even talk to me? But the same Chesterton proposes a wonderful different reading. Very. He says, God there commits a blasphemy. That the true answer of God to Hiob is, you think you are something special with your trouble, but look, the whole creation is a big mess. Like, I'd, you are nothing special. I screwed up everything. <laughs> Which is why I think the death of Christ should be read as a repetition of Job. I think that the death of Christ is not God sent the messenger, it went back, okay, come back to me, maybe we will try a thousand years later. As Hegel put it precisely, what dies on the cross is God of beyond itself. Which is why we have this unique uh, figure of Holy Spirit, which is something, again, totally unique. In what sense? I think that what really dies on the cross is, again, this disgusting idea that God is up there as a guarantee of meaning. You know, this the most disgusting metaphor that I know about religion, where you say, what, when something appears to us as evil, uh, it's only if you look at the picture from too close, no, and it looks a stain. But when you move to a proper distance, you see how what appeared to you as stain really contributes to global harmony. This idea, the situation may be confused, but there is up there God who sees it all and guarantees blah, blah. I claim, I read the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, to avoid a misunderstanding, I'm a total atheist. This is a materialist reading. I read the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as precisely uh, uh, the message is precisely there is no big other, no guarantee of meaning. I give you freedom, you are alone. Holy Ghost is not a new collective spirit. Holy Ghost means we are here alone without a guarantee. Or, as even many intelligent conservatives knew it, from Chesterton up to Paul Claudel, the true message of Christianity is not trust God. Like, it may seem confused, the things, but it's uh, God trusts us. God abdicated and Holy Spirit, which is, if I may go a little bit fast in a problematic sense, uh, Holy Spirit is the first name for Communist Party and similar institutions, if you want. It's the first egalitarian institution against, you know, here we should read Christ, sentimentalist like that Christ, you know, oh, I bring love, ha-ha. I like Christ who says, if you don't hate your mother and father, you are my, not my follower. I like Christ who says, you don't have a sword, sell your shirt and buy a sword and so on. I like Christ who says, I bring war, I bring, I bring uh, conflict, not peace. What is meant here, I claim? It's not, of course, just violence. When Christ says, hate your mother and father, I claim the idea is hate your mother and father in their function of mother and father as parts of social hierarchic order. The message, this is for me absolutely unique in the idea of a holy spirit. First, history is not circular. God is dead. There is a break. And the only hope after this break is an egalitarian 
is an uh, egalitarian community. But now, let me go even a step further. Now, you will say, yeah, 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 this all may be true, but nonetheless, in Hegel, there is a teleological movement. You know, somehow, we know it will end well and so on. Ah, it's more complex. I would like to draw your attention here to a wonderful Hegelian text, I claim, from Heinrich Kleist, from 1805, first published only posthumously in 1878. Uh, I'm sorry for this obscenity to present you the uh, title in English, on the gradual formation of thoughts in the process of speech. I think all this double temporality that I was talking about, you have it there. The idea is that when you say something deep, a new truth, sprechen is always a versprechen. You say something too much, you get confused, and then to quickly squeeze out, you invent something. In a wonderful way, Kleist interprets like that this famous moment in the French Revolution when uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the master of ceremonies from the king on June 23, uh, uh, 89, came to the Assemblée, to the assembly and said disperse and so on. And how Mirabeau first says, uh, didn't know what to say, just went on, on what authority do you think, and so on, and so on. And then said too much, didn't know what to do, and just to squeeze out of the trouble, pronounced his great sentence. Go and tell your king that we should not leave our places here except when forced with bayonets and so on and so on. So the idea is, again, that a, a true, as it were, a true invention of the new surprises you. It's, uh, and this is, I think, Hegel's list der Vernunft. It's not a, sim a reason hidden from the very beginning controlling it all. It's kind of Profit, a profit from chance. You say too much, quickly you try to um, accommodate or to somehow integrate that excess and, uh, and in a way you, uh, and you succeed. And I think this would even have been a Hegelian reading of the death of Christ. You know, Christ died. It was a shock, they didn't know what. Then somebody said, my God, why don't we turn this into a triumph? No? Like, and so on. So, uh, from here, we should go a step further. Hegel and contingency. I think that Hegel is absolutely not a philosopher of contingency in the sense that there is a deeper necessity which only expresses or articulates itself through contingencies. Hegel's deepest thought is that necessity retroactively emerges in a contingent way out of contingency. And here, I'm really sad not to have time, here you can see the materialist core of Hegel's even most speculative propositions. For example, what would have been Hegel's reading of Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon? It's not, it was predestined, he had to do it. It was, no, at that point the situation was totally open. But once Caesar crossed the Rubicon. He, as it were, recreated his destiny so that it retroactively 
uh, appeared necessary. I think I should quote here, uh, I got it from a French theorist, a wonderful small passage from French journal Le Monde, which refers to some French voting on uh, May 8, 1995. At that point, Balladur was, Edouard Balladur was one of the candidates, and, uh, and uh, in Le Monde they wrote, if, this was before this election, if Balladur will be elected, then we can say that his election was necessary. No, in the sense of something happens, and once it happens, it retroactively becomes necessary. I think that Hegelian uh, necessity always has this retroactive status, which is why, this is my final provocation, if some of you are old-fashioned Marxists, the time has come to do a materialist reversal of Marx back to Hegel. Because what this Hegel's opening towards contingency, and this is what Hegel means, not some reactionary, reactionary passivity with his, you know, uh, uh, that thought philosophy arises uh, in the evening like the owl of Minerva. Hegel is, I think, the most radical thinker of contingency in the sense that uh, for him, the position adopted by Marx, to simplify it, which is you as a historical agent can, as it were, can look into history, see where the history is going, and then posit yourself as an agent of progress. This is totally prohibited as idealist for Hegel. For Hegel, precisely, there is no big other in the sense of uh, general tendency and so on and so on. Uh, you know whom I should talk about, but don't have time here, about, for example, uh, the great conservative poet, but there he is good, T.S. Eliot in his most famous text, you know, the uh, 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 tra tradition and individual talent, when he says that every really new work of art doesn't just introduce something new, but retroactively changes the entire history of art. Of course, we are not talking about magic, but about how the meaning, the narrative of the entire past is, is, uh, is changed. This, I think, is the Hegelian also theory of totality. Not we have a large evolutionary necessary narrative where everything is preordained. No, on the contrary, that with every new break, the whole past is the whole past is rewritten. If I may refer here to another old example, which illustrates this point perfectly, Borges wrote about Kafka that every writer can have its forerunners, predecessors, but that Kafka, only Kafka and some of the greatest, can be said to, to create also their forerunners. He means that, of course, we can now say it's clear that Kafka had forerunners in, I don't know, Dostoevsky, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, uh, William Blake, but we can say this only once Kafka is here. And again, it is wrong to say that, yes, this is simply reality before and just uh, that we are in this way just retroactively projecting things into the past. No, here Hegel should be read with Benjamin. What if history is not fully constituted? What if history is in itself open? 
so that we don't have already before fully constituted events, but they are also retroactively constituted. So, to come to the end slowly, the best story, metaphor, almost joke, about Hegelian vision of reality would have been for me what I read in a certain book about modern philosophy, forgot even which one, where this book tries to explain quantum mechanics and evokes uh, computer games. The idea is this one, that uh, you know how to read Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. We all know today that Heisenberg himself got it wrong. Bohr corrected it. It's not only an epistemological obstacle that you cannot measure this and that. The gap, the opening is in the thing itself. So, here is this wonderfully simple idea. You know, if you play, I unfortunately do, being terrorized by my son, uh, this computer military games. You see a forest in the background. But this forest is not even fully programmed. You know what I mean? Because if it's not part of the game that you can go there, then why spend time programming all the details of the trees there? Or you have a house in the background. If you cannot enter the house, of course, the inner of the house is not programmed. Now comes the beautifully simple idea. What if God was the programmer of our world and was in the same sense a lazy programmer? He thought we humanity are too stupid to move beyond the atom. So God says, why should I then even program uh, the position and capacity? The humans are too stupid, no? We were a little bit too bright for God. But now comes the true materialist task. And this is, I think, the true Hegelian challenge of quantum physics. Can we think this incompleteness of reality without God thinking it in a materialist way? This, I think, is the task. If you just permit me now to uh, add some short concluding remarks. Uh, of course, in a way it is true. We cannot simply, it's ridiculous, become Hegelians. We should be the first to admit that there are things that Hegel couldn't have thought. I think that they, first, my first thesis, they concern the topic of repetition. Because, you know, as Gilles Deleuze, he didn't know that he was also a Hegelian, as Gilles Deleuze made it clear, what really characterizes the post-Hegelian space, it's not all this bullshit, positivity of being, full life, real, actual life, it's a notion of repetition, mechanic pure repetition, which in contrast to Hegel involves no Aufhebung or idealization. Hegel has, as you probably know, a beautiful theory of repetition, which is precisely back to Julius Caesar, he develops it apropos Caesar. Now how? Caesar is first just a name, Julius Caesar. Then he dies, he repeats himself as a universal title, Caesar as the title. So Hegel's point uh, is idealization. But what about what we find in thinkers as opposite as Kierkegaard and Freud? Wiederholungszwang or Kierkegaard's repetition, a kind of a pure repetition. And my point is that it's not that Hegel simply didn't see it, but there are signs which point towards this unthought of Hegel. 
And the way we should think further from Hegel is not to say, oh, there is a totally different domain. It is, and there are many points where you can clearly see how, paradoxically, Hegel wasn't Hegelian enough. Isn't this the whole point of Marx? What is effectively Marx saying, if you read Capital really closely, is not is basically that Hegel's theory of economy, although Hegel read Adam Smith and so on, didn't yet capture the whole speculative madness of capital. Hegel in economy was still this naive manufacturist, you know, people collaborate. The idea of this incredible ideal strength of capital as abstraction which rules concrete lives. Like, Hegel wasn't Hegelian enough there. That's basically the thesis of Marx. That if you take Hegel's matrix of subject, substance, uh, the whole passage from money to capital, of course, is passage from subject to substance, and so on and so on. Again, and uh, what maybe makes precisely the example of capital so uh, wonderful is that uh, Marx uses in Grundrisse fragments, I think, a very precise expression that capital is an automatic subject, an automatic subject. What does this mean? Capital is a subject beyond schlechte Unendlichkeit, spurious infinity, self-relating, but at the same time automatic. This, though, Capital was, I think, would have been such a horror for Hegel because he would have to think something which at the same time is actual infinity and the bad, endlessly repetitive infinity. So then there are, sorry, don't have time, other wonderful examples. For example, I think it absolutely should be re-read uh, Hegel's theory of madness from the first point of, point of the, third the first part, chapter of the third part of Encyclopédie Philosophie des Geistes, where Hegel develops, like to put it naively, the rise of human spirit out of animal life. And my God, it's more radical than Michel Foucault. The key notions are Wahnsinn, madness, and uh, Gewohnheit, habit. And the, the idea is that the passage through radical madness, even if, of course, doesn't happen to all of us empirically. It's a permanent background to being human. And I think here we can see this uh, negativity as Wiederholungszwang in Hegel, in his necessity of war, in his theory of madness, I don't have time to develop it also, in his, for example, theory of rebel, pöbel. And even, I claim, okay, to add a little bit of spice to end, in Hegel's theory of sexuality. Hegel is there an anti-Hegelian vulgar evolutionist. He treats sexuality as something basically biological, which we then, through our cultural development, we symbolize it, vermitteln, mediate it, and so on. Like, I no longer jump of a woman, I write poems, whatever you want, immediate. <laughs> but you know what Hegel doesn't see? And my God, he should have seen it following his own procedure. That it's not as simple as that. That uh, we don't pass directly from nature to culture. Our cu cultural rituals in love, 
are not a defense against the brutality of some natural force, but against a certain excess which we can see in this kind of a radical, deadly, erotic passion, Tristan und Isolde, and so on and so on. That is to say, once we pass from nature to culture, retroactively a third domain of, let's call it naively, radical negativity emerges. And that's the problem. You know who already knew this in a way? Kant, even. You know, in his wonderful short writing über Erziehung, he provides his famous definition of <coughs> man is a, an animal who needs a master. And then he says, why? Be not because we must need a master to control our natural instincts, but Kant speaks about some kind of a radical, madly free unruliness, which is typical to man, and which is kind of metaphysical unruliness. So again, to go back to sexuality, what Hegel, if he were to be Hegelian, today would have been definitely against the Catholic Church. And all this bullshit about how uh, if you copulate uh, just for pleasure, you are reduced to an animal, it must be for procreation. Hegel would have said, but isn't it exactly the opposite, that animals do it only basically for procreation? To take something which serves a certain terrestrial biological aim and to autonomize it with regard to that aim, to make it a, a Selbstzweck, this is the fundamental lesson of, of metaphysics. So I think Jacques Lacan is right when he claims that the horror of sexuality for Christianity and others is not, they are not fighting their vulgar utilitarian biological life. They are fighting their metaphysical competitor. What worries them in sexuality is that, and this is the thesis of Freud. The thesis of Freud is not we are determined by biology. The thesis of Freud is that sexuality is the very domain where, at its most elementary, the passage from natural to human emerges. Through, again, through drive, uh, Wiederholungszwang, which have nothing to do with, uh, with uh, instinct, and so on. So again, let me stop and finish. With, uh, half a minute. <laughs> uh, first, uh, Again, I'm not saying let's be Hegelians. I'm just saying in today's crazy world, with all, this, with all its uh, crazy reversals and so on, it's as if it offers itself to a Hegelian approach. And because Hegel lived in a certain in-between, and we obviously also do, we all know a certain epoch is coming to an end, in this sense we should repeat Hegel. But repeat Hegel in a Kierkegaardian sense, not in the sense of some Hegelian Aufhebung, but also not in the sense of doing the same as Hegel, but let me put it in this way, as Kierkegaard would have put it, uh, 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 mobilizing Hegelian potentials in today's world. And here, to avoid a misunderstanding, for example, apropos Pebble or Capital, I think the time has come maybe to even return to Hegel up to a point against great post-Hegelians like Marx. For example, Hegel's 
passages on Pöbel, Rebel. I'll usually read for Ye Hegel vaguely saw that part of society is necessarily proletarized, but he didn't see it clearly like Marx. No, isn't it that today, precisely, if there is something going on, is that the main form of class struggle is no longer simply working class bourgeoisie, but that those vaguely, let's say, exploited, are dispersed into many forms of pebble, undeveloped, those living in apartheid position, in apartheid, illegal immigrants, and so on and so on. So maybe we should even return here a little bit from Marx to Hegel. Another point where, where we should return. Now I will say something horrible. We know that Marx, which you still, I think, find in Humboldt University, philosophers have only interpreted the world as get um, the point is to change it. My God, I will say something horrible. Today, isn't it that we are living in a time where we can say this? Maybe in the 20th century, we tried too quick, too fast to change the world. And it's get the room that we interpret it, reflect a little bit more radically. And uh, this seems to be more and more the most subversive thing to do today. A proof, you in Germany are happy here. A brutal fascist counter-revolution called Bologna High Education Reform. You know what's the goal of that one? You know the horrible consequences in England and so on. It's very clear. They want to change us into experts. It is all masked into this, you know, higher education must serve social, must be socially useful and so on. What they want is that, for example, you have a problem, let's say demonstrations in the suburb of Paris, ah, you call psychologists, how to contain them, you call social workers, you call experts. But sorry, this is not thinking. Thinking is not just solving problems posed to you by others. Thinking is critically questioning the way we perceive problems. Take ecology. Ecology is not just to contain uh, Fukushima and all that. Ecology should also ask how did it come to that, in what way do we perceive the problem, like is it right to perceive it only as a technological problem or is it correct to, to, to just to spiritualize it in a superficial way, like, you know, it's, I don't know, all this anti-enlightenment uh, twist of technology and so on, sorry, of ecology and so on and so on. All, all this is crucial for me. I think that, my God, we are approaching a time where thinking is absolutely needed, like ecology, or think about biogenetics, what is happening, if really, it will go on what it appears that the limit that separates inside from outside our experience, sorry, I got your gentle body language, yes, I will finish it. <laughs> inside from outside, you know, when you can, for example, already up to a point, control mind from the outside or the other way around, I saw it in England myself, you have already chairs moving for, for cripples where, uh, crippled people where you don't even need that Stephen Hawking's finger, you know. You can directly move it by your thought. This changes the very definition of being human and so on. I claim that thinking is needed much than ever. And now I'll give you a theoreticist advice. So be careful to resist the pseudo-temptation of the state of emergency. 
when I was young, the state of emergency talk was still the talk of leftists, like, oh, you are there living in your ivory tower, but uh, children are starving in Africa. Did you notice that now Bill Gates talks like that? Why? Because if you read all those statements of emergency, which go something like this, uh, why are we still caught in this stupid ideological debate, capitalism, socialism, while children are starving in Africa? Let's get all together, private business, state, NGOs, and let's do something. The message is precisely do in the sense of don't think about it. And all, even consumption is going in this direction. Where I become, a Hegelian moment, which, which I will conclude, when I, oh, I'm not for terrorism, not in any way, but I almost become tempted by it when I pass a Starbucks uh, coffee. Because you know what operation you have there. Go into it, at least it's in England and United States, probably it's here. They do a wonderful job of ideology. They have all these posters which basically tell you this. Yes, our coffee is more expensive, but 1% goes for starving Guatemala children, 1% to, to, to protect forests. Basically, they tell you this. In the old times, we were split into consumerists and good citizens caring about. Now, we propose you to include the price of solidarity into the price of the, of the commodity, so that you can be totally consumerist, saying, but by buying that coffee, I already covered also that solidarity aspect. The message is, again, don't think buy our coffee, which is a little bit more expensive. Your thinking is included, it will be done by others, and so on. No? To fight all this, don't be afraid to be intellectuals today. The fact of Bologna reform demonstrates that at least those in power know that we are dangerous. Thanks very much for your geduld.